Well, this is an exciting time to be a part of our church. I just want to say thank you for all of your grace while we're doing all the renovations and everything else. Uh, a lot of things are happening. Um, Joan Buzzard, of all people, stopped me last week to complain about the renovations. She walked me over to outside the men's restroom and said, why in the world do you guys need to wear hard hats and safety glasses in the men's restroom? <laughs> she was very bothered by that. And I said, you don't want to know. You just don't, just don't want to know. The last several weeks, we've been talking about the kingdom of God. This is, a, this is an inexhaustible topic. It's a, just a rich biblical concept. It's something that goes deep. And it's something that's so uh, important for us to understand today. So we're going to continue with that. Our scripture reading is very small. Uh, it's in Luke chapter 17. We're reading verses 20 and 21. Listen now to God's word. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. This is the word of the Lord. The question that we're answering today uh, is, deals with time. When is the kingdom of God here? Is it here now or is it yet to come? Is it already revealed or are we waiting for something? We find here in this passage, the Pharisees actually ask a great question. When, when is the coming of the kingdom? If, if you say the Messiah, when is the kingdom going to come? And Jesus answers in a way that uh, we find difficult sometimes. He answers first with the coming of the king is not something that can be observed. What's an interesting idea? What Jesus was actually saying, it was not about the fact you couldn't perceive it, but it's not going to be dramatic. It's not going to be in the category of spectacle. See, the kingdom of God, people were hoping, would be something that would be big and grandiose. It would be obvious. It's as obvious as an overthrowing of of a government, as potentially war. And the kingdom of God was coming in more subtle ways. And Jesus was saying, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you're going to have to be watchful. You're going to have to be alert. It's not something that can be easily observed. Yet he goes on. Nor people will be able to say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Some translations uh, uh, translate this as the kingdom of God is within you. Uh, I think perhaps by the fact that Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, that perhaps a better translation is, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's actually here in your midst. And why that's so important is I believe what Jesus was saying is the kingdom of God is in your presence because the king is here. Wherever the king goes, the kingdom will follow. What Jesus was saying is what you're looking for, you're missing out on the the actual kingdom of God, because here I am. The king is here, and you don't even see me. It's a great warning for us. The kingdom of God could be in your midst, yet you might need, need to be more watchful, more alert. The kingdom of God is here. But then he goes on, just to make it a little bit more complicated, he goes on in verse 22, and saying, The time is coming when you all will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. 
people will tell you there he is or here he is, kind of the echo of the previous passage. Do not go running after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. So Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is here, but it's going to come again. And it will be in the obvious category. It will be in the spectacular category. It will be like lightning that will be able to light up the darkness. It will be that extreme, which is a great warning for any time when we hear people who are claiming to be the, the second coming of Christ. It will be obvious. It won't be subtle. It's a good reminder for us. So Jesus is saying here that uh, it's in your midst, but it's going to come one day. What? You can just see the Pharisees going, uh, move on. You know, there's, there's, it's just confusing. John Piper actually talks about this as the confusing coming of Christ's kingdom. It's confusing. And we see that not only in the life of the Pharisees who seem to miss it often, but also the most intimate relationships that Jesus had. Take, for instance, John the Baptist. He's the one, the first one to say, here is the Messiah. Behold, the Lamb of God. Here he is. And then life goes on. And the kingdom of God is in the midst. And he's put in prison. And he actually sends a messenger, if you remember this in our, in our scripture. He actually says, sends a messenger to Jesus to say, Really? Are you really the king? Is this really the kingdom? I just need to know. See, even John the Baptist was just confused, anxious about whether or not the kingdom of God is really here. Because you look around and you really wonder, right? Is the kingdom of God here? Is it yet to be? If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you've heard the answer over and over and over again in all the scripture that the kingdom of God, the simple answer is yes, it's here, and yes, it will be one day. It, when you start thinking about the mystery that revolves around the kingdom of God and time, it can be a bit perplexing. For me personally, I don't like it when you're watching a movie and all of a sudden there's time travel. It gets so confusing. I just, my eyes start to roll. Really? I just don't have no stomach for it. Because it gets confusing. How does it play out itself here? How has it played itself out? And when, how will it play it out in the future? You see, God's kingdom work for us is in the past, it's in the present, and it will be in the future. And for me, uh, when I was thinking about this topic today, when I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking about how was the kingdom of God made manifest here in this world? And I thought about God's people changing our environment and transforming it by God's grace to reflect God's kingdom. But there's something within me that said, but there's something more foundational. There's something that goes deeper. The kingdom of God is first rooted in the life of the believer. God's kingdom, past, present, and future, is already foundationally rooted within the life of the believer. One of the reasons why I thought of this was uh, from uh, just a simple quote from a guy named Dallas Willard. He said, The greatest thing that God gets out of our life is the person we become. If I were to finish that statement, the greatest thing God gets out of our life are our best deeds. <laughs> our greatest achievements done in God's name. But what, what he was saying is, no, it's actually the person that we are being formed. 
when we're being transformed by God's kingdom as it's taken root deeply within us, that is when God gets the greatest pleasure. And it's also the only way which we can transform our environment. If, if we put the latter in front of the first, what we find is our striving to just do better without being fully formed. So the rest of this morning, what I would like to talk about is how God's kingdom work within the believer, past, present, and future. Now, we're going to use some churchy church words for those people who don't like churchy church words. I'm just, this is your warning. Spoiler alert. I'm thankful for being in a, uh, a part of a rich tradition that has people, very thoughtful people gone before who will help uh, give us the way. Uh, we're going to talk about justification, sanctification, and glorification in three different ways, past, present, and future, in which God's kingdom is taking shape in the life of the believer. Versus justification. And if you are familiar with these terms, uh, my challenge to you is put them back on the shelf and think as if it were the first time you were to hear this. Justification is about how you are claimed in Christ. For those who know Jesus, it's for how you are claimed in Christ. What justification is, is when Jesus laid himself down, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Our half. He, take, he took our burden and we took on his purity and access to the Father. Justification is a once for all deal. When you wake up in the morning and your feet hit the carpet, you stand in the place of victory because of how God has claimed you. You see, for me, in, in my life, um, I... I find that justification is probably the, the thing that's hardest for us to really embrace. It's the, the biggest amount of heresy that I see in, in our own community. And it's not, I don't mean heresy in a bad way, but it's just the thing that we struggle with is really believing that at our core, we have been accepted. We've been loved. And we've been claimed. In our life, if we go on default, we have this ledger on this side of the things that I've done to merit favor from God and the failures I have had as well, to merit disapproval and distance from God. And just with the religious life, we'll fill up this ledger and think our relation is based on that. When the gospel of grace comes to us, though, it says, all that matters is that Christ has claimed you and your name is in that book once and for all, and it's shut. By the power and love of Jesus, you have been claimed. That's what's so beautiful about baptism, right, is it's before you know anything that you're claimed by the love and the mercy of Jesus. Uh, for me, growing up in the tradition that I did, uh, I was baptized around three, three different times. And each time I was like, I'm serious this time. <laughs> for reals, you know, in more holy language than that. And I just remember always thinking the ice was so thin, when I'd wander, when I would run away, when I would deny God that I have to just seek to try to get back to him. And so when friends would say, when were, you, when were you saved, Mark? I'd say, well, when I was nine years old at a gymnasium revival at our church, uh, the, the last night, uh, while softly and tenderly Jesus is calling, between stands at three and four, when the pastor stopped and said, you never know when it might be your time. I go, okay, I'm going forward. 
And it has nothing to do with the fact that my best friend, Cliff, did it the week before and it, he went out to dinner at Luby's. It has nothing to do with that. Um, but as I've just kind of grown to see what the gospel really is about, when we're asked, when were you saved? It's not about our achievements or our statements. What it really is about is, I was saved 2,000 years ago when for no reason at all, God laid himself down on the only earthly throne that he had on this kingdom and said, it's finished, you're mine. That is what justification is all about. And this is how uh, Christianity is different from all other religions. All other religions is your pursuit of trying to get right with God and experience God. And where Christianity stands in total opposite, it's a story of the pursuing love of Christ. It's all of, our focus is all on him. Justification is the reminder that the whole Christian life, everything we do is in response it's in response to what's already been done. All of the Christian life is in response to what has already been done. The love of God has gone before us. It's initiated for God so loved. And the rest is response. Yet this is hard for us to receive. I remember reading a story about a, uh, a Japanese soldier named Hiro Onada. He passed away this past January. Uh, he was a Japanese soldier commissioned to spy on the American troops in World War II in the jungles of the Philippines. Uh, there was only one problem. No one told him that the war had ever finished. So, he stayed there looking for intel on the Americans for 29 years after the war was over with. He would not leave his stand, hiding in the jungle, trying to find intelligence on the Americans. So several times people tried to tell him the war was over, but he wouldn't give up. Audio recordings were blaring over the jungle. He wouldn't give up. Uh, they would fly over and drop pamphlets, leave pamphlets all over the jungle, just saying all the information of why the war is over. It didn't work. Beloved family members would wander around looking for him. His own grandchildren, whom he never met, <laughs> would go looking for him. Finally, they realized what they had to do. His commanding officer was contacted and asked to go in person to reverse his orders given to him in 1945, releasing him to come home. And at that point, Onada emerged from the jungle in March of 1974 and handed over his sword and went home. And we look at someone like that and go, really? How sad not to get that the war was over. For the Christian who is still trying to earn merit with God, it's so much worse. For those who have been claimed by Christ, who, who have experienced the powerful love of Jesus, who still feel like this relationship is based on you, come out of the jungle, hand over your sword, quit trying, and experience what does it mean to be justified and found and hidden and loved in Jesus Christ. Accept your citizenship and begin to live in freedom. Just receive it. It's so hard for us to do. Just receive it. I think that's why Sabbath is so hard for us. The ability of just to stop and believe that if you were to do nothing, God's pleasure would still pour over you. So we have to find ways to be begin to listen to the words spoken about us that are rooted in justification. To block out other words that try to give us a different identity and lock into the words that are, are about justification only in Christ. And we talk about how there's a still small voice within our hearts and minds. We think about it usually as Jesus I experienced 
other still small voices within my mind that aren't good. <laughs> I, you know, that typically happen when I have a huge failure in my life. I screw up. And this little voice comes in the back of my head. What a fake. What a fraud. If only. If only people knew. And I've dealt with that for years and years and years. That just that little voice. And for you, you might be something different. There's usually an expletive somewhere in mine. You fake and you fraud. And what I've had to learn is to truly believe in God's grace, believe I'm justified and that kingdom of Christ has taken up residence deep within me. It's for me to learn how to also listen to the voice of Christ that says, you're my beloved, and I get the final say of who you are. My voice goes deeper within your soul, within, before, deeper within anything else. You're mine. We have been justified in Christ. The second part is here now. It's here and now. It's the sanctification. What does it mean to be sanctified? What is Christ's kingdom work within us to be sanctified? Sanctification is the process of revealing your truer identity. It's the process where we grow into Christ's likeness. We have been justified so that we can be sanctified. Andy Dearman, our good friend and seminary uh, professor, would always start his class with this single statement. Good morning, saints. Every single class, he'd start off that way as if to remind them all and remind us all that we have been claimed to be saints. So, therefore, let's be saints. Let's live into that identity of who we are. Sanctification is about us growing in holiness and compassion and purity and Christ-likeness. Now, this is not to be confused with earning salvation or stepping back into that religious life. It's about us simply being who we were created to be. Philippians 3.16 says it so very well. Let us live up to what we've already attained. That's what sanctification is about. Just living into what we've already attained, which is if we've been hidden in Christ and found in Christ, let's live like it. Uh, the problem is that sin runs deep. Sin runs every layer we peel back and we experience healing and wholeness. There's another layer that goes deeper. This process of sanctification will never finish. By God's grace, it will never finish. When we look at um, Adam and Eve, when they experienced brokenness and sin for the first time, what did they do? When I read it, they did two different things. I guess three. They blamed each other. Uh, two, they covered their shame, and then they hid. And brokenness will always do that. It will cover itself, and it will hide. So deep within us, there's brokenness that perhaps we've never acknowledged. And sanctification is this beautiful process of being exposed to the light and being fully healed and made whole. The Puritan fathers talked about sanctification, use some more churchy church words, uh, but here they are in two different words, vivification and mortification. Vivification is about breathing life. It's about doing what you need to do to grow in Christ's likeness by having life being breathed into you. So, for instance, a friend of mine, Steve Vitterini, said this recently, he's been getting up earlier than he ever has because he's taken seriously, he's taken literally the idea of seek first his kingdom. So when he gets up in the morning, he's seeking God's kingdom first. And he said it's been trans transformational for him, just waking up earlier. It's breathing life into him. 
He doesn't start his day and just respond the rest of the day. He's taking initiative and breathing in life so that he can be able to live out the rest of his day as someone who's being sanctified. But then there's also mortification. Mortification is the killing of sin. Uh, It's about the fact that if we want to grow in sanctification, we have to come up with ways by God's grace to kill our sin patterns. For me, personally, I'll I'll have a confession. I'm a recovering uh, addict of people-pleasing. Oh, it's, I am a people pleaser. And you're going to find that most pastors are. We're the most insecure bunch of people you'd ever meet. If you go to a pastor's conference, it is sick. It's awful. I'm a people pleaser. I, like, I've been chained to have people's approval. The worst that I've ever seen it was, there have been a couple of times where I'll pay to go on a fishing trip. There's a guide that's, you know, oh, you should try fishing here, make sure not to. I spend the whole time, after spending money to go on this fishing trip, trying to earn his approval. You know, every time I catch a fish, I'm like, hey, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, you happy with me? You know, it's a stranger I'm never going to see again. I just, I'm, I'm addicted to people-pleasing. So we, ha- we have to come up with ways in which to curb and kill these sin patterns in my life. And so for me, I've came up with a pl- plan. My goal is to disappoint three people every day. And so, um, sometimes I, I knock two of those out before I leave the house in the morning. <laughs> but I, I just, I'm, because I really, I honestly think through this. So, if you ask me to do something and I go, sorry, I'm not going to, and you see me do this, you know why. But I've, it's been helpful for me because when I experience the disapproval of other people, my, my immediate self-response is, I'll do whatever. I'll do whatever it takes to make you happy with me, which means... I'm yoked to a lot of people's approval. So for me, experiencing freedom is going, nope, I, I need to stop that impulse. I need to, I need to stop that pattern that's, it's, slave, it's slavery. And that's what all sin pattern is. It's slavery. Learning how to be free, be made free. You've been set free, so be free. And that's what sanctification is all about. It's about freedom. It's God's kingdom spilling into all parts of our life so that we could experience freedom. It's about having a release of God's power within our life. God is giving everything we need for life and godliness, that it's here, it's present, it's now. So some of us have places in our life that we need to experience freedom. The kingdom of God wants to break into your life so you experience freedom. So the greatest thing you can do, if you know if you, know you have that pattern in your life, the first thing you need to do is go into fe- confession. Confession brings wholeness to yourself. Confession to the Lord and to someone else. It speaks into who you are and who you're not yet able to live into. And it brings about healing and restoration. That's sanctification. The last thing is glorification. God's kingdom work in the future. We don't think about glorification all that much, do we? But it's about when Jesus returns, what will happen to the believer? We'll experience God's glory, and there'll be a transformation that will happen in the, in the life of the believer. Uh, the New Testament, uh, I was worried I wouldn't be able to find much material on glorification in New Testament. It's everywhere. They were obsessed with it. 
Here's a couple examples. Romans 8.30 talks about how Jesus promises to glorify the believer. And those he predestined, we're a good Presbyterian church, we love that part, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Glorification is important to remember for those who suffer. Romans 8.17, now if we are children, we are heirs. And if we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. If you're going through difficulty and persecution, that's building anticipation for glorification. Glorification is important to understand our identity. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 say, but our citizenship is in this world. No, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Glorification is promised result of Christ's return. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. It, this all made me wonder, if I was doing this study of glorification in the New Testament, why were they so obsessed with it and it's so foreign to us? How come when they were writing to one another in the New Testament days, they were just continually looking and talking about when Christ returns, this is what will happen in and through and with us. And how come we so rarely talk about it? I think in part it might have to do with something with we live in a calculated world, seeing is believing, so it squeezes out room for mystery and wonder. We don't, we don't really are captivated with the idea of what it might be like one day when we are fully known and fully revealed and we get to live the life as we were fully created to be. And I think another reason why this is so foreign is the people who think about eternity with God and think about glorification the least are the people who are already home in this world. And I'm I'm one of them. I, I rarely think how this is not where I belong to be. I'm just passing through. All those concepts, I rarely think that. I just think this is my home. You know, if you, if you study hymns, there's a progression, especially hymns written uh, previous about 50 years ago, 100 years ago, is the last stanza in the hymn will reflect on heaven. Just to remind us that there's more to this world than what we see. Oh, if God could just create within us imagination of the kingdom of God in his glory, how would that change us? How would that form us? You see, God is wanting to usher this kingdom in our past, in our present, in our future. So which part of this kingdom work do you neglect the most? Do you neglect what has already been done on your behalf? And just think about how all of your life is in response to God's work already done Do you neglect God's work here to sanctify you and grow you into more Christ-likeness? Or do you neglect what will be one day, the glorification of the saints? Which of this kingdom do you neglect the most? Personally, I think the thing that's most important to keep in our forefront of our mind is that the kingdom of God, yes, was initiated in the past and will be one day fully revealed, but it's never more present than this moment right here that God longs for the kingdom of God to break into this moment right here. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in the Screwtape Letters. He shares this, warning from one to another. The, The future is of all things the least like eternity. 
It's the most temporal part of time, for the past is frozen and it no longer flows, and the present is all lit up with eternal rays. The present. For the present is the point at which time touches eternity. It's the moment where time, the singular moment right here, touches eternity. It's when the kingdom of God can explode within the life of the believer. To make the most of every single opportunity. The kingdom of God wants to do that. And we will never be a great church until we have experienced the transformational power of the kingdom of God first within our hearts. If we've never experienced what it means to have be transformed by God's kingdom, for God not to have taken residence deep within our hearts as we raise up the white flag and say, it's all yours. We will never be a great church until we experience that individually and corporately. God, may your will be done in my life, in our life, so that we could be able to go in this world as transformed people, not only merely, merely waving a pamphlet of what could be one day, but to say, look at my life. Look at the power and faithfulness of God in my life. So I would like to end with something a little bit different. I want to practice how the kingdom of God can be a part of the present moment. And I ask you to do something a little bit different. If you're sitting by yourself, if you could sit, move so you're sitting next to someone else and for you guys to squeeze together. Actually, I know this is the ultimate sin, asking people to move their pews. I'm so sorry. But if you're just a clump of four of you, that's fine. You can stay a clump of four or three or whatever. Just move where you're sitting next to people. And I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer, interactive prayer. And I'd encourage you guys to, just with boldness, just join me in this prayer. You're not going to pray out loud or anything. But I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. First, begin with your hands and close like this. And deep, uh, as you feel that there's no room between your hands, uh, just remember the fact that there's nothing you could bring to earn the favor of God, that you have nothing to make you right with God. And yet feel the, the air around your hand as a reminder of how God's grace surrounds you. It's all around you. And just beginning, just begin having words of gratitude to the Lord for his undeserved favor, for making things right. Now move your hand into a cup as if you are holding a ball within both of your hands. or So just one cup. And uh, spend some time in honest confession to the Lord of that which deep within you in which you need to surrender to the Lord. The thing that's a reminder that the kingdom of God has not yet been uh, fully revealed in yourself. And with boldness, confess that to God. Now with open hands facing the ceiling, surrender that to the Lord. Ask for courage and boldness to be able to surrender yourself fully to God's kingdom. And with open hands, receive God's grace. Let's receive
And now reach out and put your hand on the, sh- the shoulder of the person next to you. And pray that God's spirit would fully transform that person. That God's kingdom would take deep root and transform and form and grow them to be who God's always longed them to be. Jesus Christ, we invite you to move in power in our lives, that your kingdom would be made known deep within our hearts and our souls, that we would experience the powerful claiming love of Jesus once and for all, that we've been claimed and hidden in you. And give us the courage to do the hard work of surrendering and surrendering and surrendering ourselves to you so that we could be fully formed and transformed by your spirit and by your power. And Lord, we are so grateful, we're so thankful for the promises that we have in you that one day your love will have the final say. We'll never be more alive on that day. We thank you for those promises. And we pray that your will would be done in this place and in this church. And it's Christ's name that we pray. Amen.